Good morning and welcome again. We're glad that you're here today. Appreciate so much your presence. If you're visiting, as always, we invite you to come back. We're grateful that you've chosen to come here today. If you're looking for a church home, as always, we invite you to invite you to consider the work here. We'd love to have you come and be a part of the work. I know the elders would be more than happy to meet with you, to answer any questions that you might have about the work, and we'd love to have you. It's good to see each and every person here today, and hopefully and prayerfully, you can be back again tonight. We'd love to have you back. Uh, Jared's going to be preaching tonight, and so I know that you'll want to be here to hear that. He'll do an outstanding job. I want to just share with you very quickly, I had a note left on my desk I thought you might be interested in. It said, Dear Mr. Mike, I enjoy sitting at your desk and eating candy, but you need to get more of my favorites. I'll make you a list below for the next time you go to the store. Thanks in advance. Number one, sweet tarts. Number two, spree. And number three, gummy bears. And it was signed, Squirrely. So if there's a little squirrel out here somewhere looking for some food, I guess when I go to the grocery again, I'll try to get some. I try to keep enough stock on hand for everybody, but... I may have fallen short this time. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 7 today. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 27, the passage that was read just a moment ago. And we want to talk today about Jesus and his ability to save you. I want us to think about that in a very personal way. Jesus has the ability to save you. Jesus Christ came and died for the sins of the human family. It is a very personal thing when we talk about the hope of salvation. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ would have come to earth, suffered, bled, and died if we were the only person to ever live. It's a marvelous thought. I want to begin our study today by, first of all, calling attention to the person who saves. I want you to think with me for a moment or two about the pedigree of Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, the writer talks about the lineage of Jesus from an earthly vantage point, and then the writer also talks about his heavenly lineage. Or pedigree. He is identified as the Son of God. In Hebrews chapter 1 at verse 1, the writer talks about how God, who in the long ago had spoken to the prophets, now today speaks unto us through his Son. The Son is identified as the Son of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer there contrast the superiority of Christ over angelic beings. And in the long ago, he said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He would also say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Jesus Christ, as you well know, identified himself as the Son of God. 
He was identified by others as the Son of God. In Matthew's account in chapter 16, while there were some who were on the streets saying that Jesus was John the Baptist or Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets, Simon Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So when we talk about the pedigree of Jesus, we need to first and foremost understand that He is the Son of God. And then He is identified as the Son of Man. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer tells us, a body was prepared for Jesus. That body, as you well know, was prepared in the womb of Mary. Jesus had an earthly mother and a heavenly father. The angel of God told Joseph that that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And he said, she shall bring forth a son. And he said, you will call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, the writer said, But now we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So by way of pedigree, Jesus is the Son of God, but he is the Son of Man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He was the eternal Word who became flesh, as John said in John chapter 1, verse 14. John said, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, His pedigree, and then secondly, think with me if you would about the priesthood of Jesus. The priesthood of Jesus is borne out in our lesson text. Listen again to what the writer said beginning in verse 25. Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, or innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Let me just pause here for a minute. In chapter 8, verse 1, if you want a thesis... For the book of Hebrews, with regard to the priesthood of Christ, is chapter 8, verse 1. This is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. When it comes to the priestly work of Jesus, first I would suggest to you that he is the sinless Lamb of God. Jesus Christ was that lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's what John said concerning the Christ. Peter said that we were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, him who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who cannot be tempted with the infirmities or the things that we are. But he said, he is a merciful and faithful high priest. Look at chapter 4 if you would. 
Listen to him again in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus is that sinless lamb of God. But he is also the sufficient lamb of God. What do I mean when I say the sufficient lamb of God? Well, drop down and look at verse 27. In verse 27, the writer said, Who does not need daily as those high priests. You think about that Levitical priesthood in the long ago. And they offered, as the writer said, they offered sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the people's. But the Bible says this he did once when he offered up himself. Over in chapter 10, the Bible says, In those sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. In verse 4, he said, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And yet when Jesus died, His sacrifice for us was sufficient. In chapter 10, the Bible says in verse 10, But that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In verse 11, he said, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, he said, which can never take away sins. So first, when you think about the priesthood of Jesus, you have to understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He is the sinless Lamb. He is the sufficient Lamb. There's something else you need to see. When we talk about the blessings and favors of Almighty God, as our priest... He makes intercession for sinners, doesn't He? Listen again to what the Bible says, verse 25. Therefore He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He ever lives to make intercession for them. Now in 1 Timothy chapter 2 at verse 4, the Bible tells us that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus Christ functions as our mediator, doesn't He? In that position, what did he do? Mankind estranged from God, separated from God. And so you have Christ on the one hand, God on the other, the sinner in the middle. And so what Jesus does, he brings the sinner to God to enjoy a relationship. He has closed that gap, bridged that gap. Now, how was all that possible? By his blood? Again, He sacrificed His life so that we might enjoy the blessings of redemption. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the Bible says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. That is, there's no forgiveness. All of those bulls and goats that were offered in days gone by, they were offered in anticipation of the sacrificial death of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And do you remember John the Baptist in John chapter 1? When he saw Jesus coming from afar, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus has the ability, he had the ability to die for our sins and to bridge that gap. In Ephesians 2 verse 12, the Bible says that those who are outside a covenant relationship with God are without hope and without God in this world. In verse 13 he said, But now... 
present state. In, he said, but now you that once were far off, he said, are brought near by the blood of Christ. So we can enjoy a relationship through the Lord. He intercedes for sinners and he intercedes for saints, doesn't he? And the Bible tells us not only is Jesus a mediator, and the mediator according to Paul, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, not only is he a mediator, he functions as our advocate. In other words, Jesus Christ is pictured is standing before the throne of God. And he is pleading our case. And the basis upon which we enjoy forgiveness, the basis upon which we are exonerated, is his blood. And the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 1, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In chapter 2 of 1 John, he said, My little children, these things I write to you. Well, why? That you sin not. He said, But if any man sins, let him know he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. And so Jesus is working on our behalf. He ever lives to make intercession for us. It's a beautiful thought. So we talk about the person of salvation. And then there's a second thing you need to see, and that is the power of salvation. Look again at verse 25. The Bible says, therefore he is able. That word able is the same word that is translated power. For example, in Romans 1 verse 16, where the Bible says, Paul speaking, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What the writer here is saying is that Jesus Christ has the power, the ability to do what? To save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Let me just pause here for a minute. Salvation is exclusively through Jesus, isn't it? You think about all the great blessings that we enjoy in this life. One of the great blessings is to know that Jesus has the ability to save us. The Lord said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Luke said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so to think about the fact that Jesus has the ability to save us. Now I want to share with you two things very quickly. First, He has the power to forgive your sins. And again, that's a personal thing. When it was announced to Joseph that Mary would bring forth a son, he said, speaking of Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Did you know that Jesus has the power to save you? He can save you from the claim sin has on your life. Now you may be here today and you're struggling with sin. And it might be that there's something amiss in your life. And for whatever reason, you have determined in your own mind there's just no way 
that you can rid yourself of this sin. That's what the devil wants you to think. He wants you to believe that he has claimed you and you can't get away from him. That's a lie. You need to understand that whatever claim sin has on your life, Jesus has the ability, he has the power to break that claim. Now you ask me the question, how do you know that? I know it because I can read of others who were in that same predicament, and guess what? He broke that claim in their life. Do you remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4? This woman had been married five times. She was living with a man. After her encounter with Jesus, she went back and said, Come see a man that's told me everything I've ever done. What about in John chapter 8 when Jesus was confronted with a woman taken in adultery? Did he not have the power to break the claim of sin in her life? Or what about the people in Corinth? When Paul wrote to, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and by the way, he spent 18 months there. And those people were steeped in idolatry and immorality. Their lives were messed up to the core. Did sin have a claim on those people? Yes, it did. Paul talked about how they had been adulterers and fornicators and idolaters. They had been living in homosexuality. He said some were thieves, some were covetous, some were drunkards, some were revilers, some were extortioners. But in verse 11 he said, such were some of you, past tense. That claim, broken. By whom? By the Lord. Not only does Jesus have the power to break the claim that sin has on your life, but the Lord Jesus has the power to break the chain of sin in your life. Sometimes sin ensnares, entraps, it chains people, it enslaves people. Jesus would say in John chapter 8, that those who commit sin are literally a bondservant of sin. And the idea is you're walking around with a ball and chain. That's what sin does. And you may be here today. And you are chained to a life of sin. In your mind, again, you don't see any way out. You don't think that you can be helped. But you need to understand the Lord can break that chain. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall do what? It will make you free. Free from what? From sin. From a life of sin. If we had the time, we could go through the New Testament. And we could read about life after life after life. Pardoned by the cleansing blood of Christ. The lives that were affected for change. Do you remember when Paul wrote his second letter to the church at Corinth? In chapter 5, verse 17, he said, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He said, All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, I said a moment ago, Jesus has the power to forgive your sins. Look at verse 12, chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 12, the Lord said, speaking through the Hebrew writer, I will be merciful 
to their unrighteousness. Jesus Christ is merciful. Jesus Christ is a being of love. And he wants to forgive. And he can purge your record. Listen to the continuation. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities or lawless deeds. I will remember no more. I'll just pause there for a minute. First, the power to forgive. Secondly, the power to forget. It may be the case that you're here today and there are things that you've done in your life that others here know about. They know about your actions, they know about your words, they know about your lifestyle. It might be that your lifestyle is an open book in the eyes of a lot of folks. And you feel like your life is stained. You're ashamed of what you've done, where you've been, what you've said. And there are some people that won't let you forget what you've done in the past. Every time you see them, they bring it up. Let me tell you what, the Hebrew writer here speaking of Almighty God, he's saying, number one, God has the power to forgive your sins, and He does. When those people that had crucified the Son of God had been pricked in their hearts on Pentecost Day, and they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, here's what you need to do, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. In other words, so your sins can be forgiven, remitted, removed. Saul of Tarsus. Do you remember when Ananias instructed him to arise and be baptized and do what? Wash away your sins. Gone. Cleansed. We enjoy the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. The writer said in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Now you contrast what we enjoy today to those who lived under the Mosaic Dispensation and the Patriarchal Period. The writer, the writer said, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. It wasn't possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. But Jesus Christ, He has effectively made it possible for us to enjoy pardon in the absolute sense of the word. So you can be forgiven, God will not only forgive your sins, He will forget them. In other words, He's not like the human family. When God says He forgives your sins and that He forgets your sins, He means it. In other words, He's not going to dredge up the past again. Listen again, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins and their lawless deeds. He said, I will remember no more. I would underline that no more. To know that whatever I've done in the past, once I've been forgiven, God said, I will remember it no more. No more means no more. It means never again. So once you enjoy forgiveness from Almighty God, what He's saying is, look, whatever's in your past, it's in the past. Think again about the people to whom Paul wrote in Corinthians, in the Corinthian letters. 
All these things they've been caught up in. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. But what happened? He said, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so in chapter 5, verse 17, 2 Corinthians, it could say, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things passed away. They're gone. It's not what you were. It's what you are. It's not about your past. It's about the present. That's what the Lord's saying. It's a great message. Now, very quickly, thirdly, the people he saves. We talk about the person who saves, the power to save. What about the people he saves? There are two kinds of people the Lord Jesus saves. First, he saves hurting people. What do I mean when I say hurting people? I mean people who are hurting because of their spiritual life. Do you not think that there were people in the, day, in the days of Jesus that were hurting? I'm talking about they were hurting. Their lives were upside down. I mentioned a moment ago the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Here was a woman that was an outcast. She was looked down upon by the Jewish people. They viewed her as a half-breed. As a matter of fact, John said in John chapter 4, by way of commentary, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. This woman knew that. And yet Jesus made time for her. He engaged in dialogue with her. Now you think about all the people that would have had nothing to do with her. And yet Jesus took time why? Because she was hurting. Her life was a mess, and yet Jesus had the ability, the power to change her life, and he did. Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was what? A tax collector. People in that day, they didn't like tax collectors. Zacchaeus, as a matter of fact, had probably been skimming money based on the text. And yet Jesus said, Today, salvation has come to your house. So you think about people who are hurting. Now, you may be here today, and you're hurting. You're hurting because your life's not what you thought it would be, because sin is running rampant in your life. It may be the case that you were brought up differently. Maybe your mama and daddy, you told you, they told you in the long ago, look, here's how you need to live. They tried to rear you in the Lord. And today you're living a disobedient life. It might be that, spiritually speaking, your family's falling apart. Your husband, your wife's not faithful. Your children aren't faithful. Your grandchildren aren't faithful. You're hurting, and the Lord knows it. You need to understand, the Lord has the ability to put your life back together. You know, there are people in our world today, their lives have been fractured, divided their lives are a mess and let me tell you what the beauty of Christianity is this is a message of hope it's called the good news so I want you to know if you're hurting today let me tell you what the Lord has the ability to heal you he has just the right medicine to get you back on track the Lord 
Not only does he save hurting people, he saves humble people. In order to come to Christ, there's something that is essential. It's called humility. One of the most difficult things in life is to recognize I don't know it all. And I can't do it all alone. Sometimes to have the humility to simply say, you know what? I'm wrong. In Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus gave what we call the Beatitudes, He began by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit simply means to be humble. He would follow that by saying, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. What He's talking about is those who mourn over their sins. They realize that their lives are a mess and they're grief-stricken and so what they want is the comfort that only Jesus can give. So I close today by asking you, will you let Jesus save you today? Did you know that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and says, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, today. I want to ask you today, will you let Jesus save you today? You might ask the question, what do you need to do? Well, here's what you need to do. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus said, except you believe that I'm He, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24. And then you need to repent of your sins, that is, to give up sin. Get out of the sinning business, Luke 13, verse 3. And then confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, that Jesus is the Son of God, just like the eunuch did, Acts 8, 37. And then when you're immersed in water, the Bible says you enjoy the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. The Bible also says God will put you in the church, Acts 2, 47. And the beauty of that is when you're in the church, you're among the redeemed, the saved, the cleansed. And the Bible says in Ephesians 5, 23, Jesus is the Savior of the body, which is the church. So if you're faithful till death, the promise is the crown of life. Maybe you're here today and your life is a mess. You're hurting. And maybe your attitude has been you don't need anybody. You don't need anybody telling you what to do. And you realize, you know what, the Lord's way is the best way. And you want to come back. Could I tell you this? The Lord will take you back. John said, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Won't you come as we stand and sing?